Hello, you're listening to Perspectives from the Economist Intelligence Unit, a new podcast which provides perspectives for industry and management to understand how the world is changing and how that creates opportunities to be seized and, more importantly at the moment, risks to be managed. Each episode will draw on the expertise of our editors and other thought leaders to examine insights from our global program of research and events. I'm your host, Charles Ross, Asia Editorial Director for the Economist Intelligence Unit. We are launching this first episode during a period of great uncertainty, which can rightfully be described as unprecedented. It has been made possible with the support of SAS, a global provider of data and analytics software and services that help turn data into intelligence. Since first announcing itself in Wuhan province in China at the start of the year, the pandemic has led to society-wide lockdowns across the world, bringing all but commerce and services deemed most essential to a sudden halt and leaving large portions of our population sheltering at home and many of them sadly out of work. The IMF, in its latest World Economic Outlook, predicts the worst economic fallout since the Great Depression as a result of these measures. The WTO has also revised its forecast for global trade in 2020, projecting that volumes could fall by between 13 and a huge 32%, depending on the length of the pandemic and really how effective the policy response has been to it from a country level. So to help companies navigate the uncertainty, the EIU developed a global business barometer to track private sector views on the impact of COVID-19, how businesses are coping, and their plans for the next three months and beyond. The first iteration of the barometer was launched today, and I'm really fortunate to have Andrew Staples with me to discuss the results. Andy is my colleague in the Singapore office and is the Global Editorial Director for The Economist Corporate Network. Andy, welcome to the first of our Perspectives podcasts. Hi, Charlie. Now, getting into the results of the barometer, we found that pessimism is declining, but it still does not turn to optimism as the concept shift from large and abstract, like the global economy, to smaller and more concrete, like the outlook for their company. Now, the barometer was built from a scale of minus 50, much worse, to plus 50, much better. And the readings were global economy minus 39 out of a possible minus 50, so really quite negative. Gets a little bit better on a regional economy where it moves to minus 36. At a country level, about the same, minus 36. At an industry level, a bit more positive as well, minus 22. And finally, at the company level, we're seeing a more positive result, although still negative at minus 17. So it's not great news, but there is potentially a glimmer of hope in there for executives who believe that the things that they can control may rebound more quickly. Now, Andy, what are you hearing from your network members who are spread across the Asia region and also come from a range of industries? Why do you think it is the case that there's a bit more positivity at a company level? 
Yeah, I think that broadly reflects what we hear from our members. And just to give a little bit of context, we're the briefing and networking arm of the Economist Group. So our members are generally representatives, business leaders from multinationals operating across Asia. And we're in China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia as well. And we're very cross-sector. So we've got everybody from oil and gas to luxury logistics and financial services, everything in between. So a really good sort of snapshot of the economy. It's interesting that the the survey was run for the barometer over the last couple of weeks. And I think that's probably, if we look back, maybe the sort of depth or the darkest part of the COVID crisis, hopefully. And the findings might reflect that, particularly for the global economy, where we're getting a lot of data out from people like the IMF, from ourselves, indicating that this is going to be a very severe downturn. However, business leaders in Asia have been dealing with this, of course, since you know the end of January, right the way through February, March as well. And they've been adapting to this. So very early on, we were talking to a lot of people about you know dealing with a shock in China and then a regional shock. And people have plenty of time to adjust to this, to put their business continuity plans uh, into play and indeed to adjust mindsets, I think, which is maybe something we come back to a little bit later on to deal with it. And where you do get, as, as you sort of pointed out, at the company level, the sort of level of pessimism is nowhere near as deep as it is for the global economy. I think this reflects the fact that you know business leaders have to deal with it. They've got their workforces, they've got their clients, they've got customers that they need to be dealing with, and they're just getting on and doing the best that they possibly can. And so that's where their focus is. As soon as you step back and and start looking at the bigger picture, over which you have much limited control, then we see a gloomier picture emerge. That's really interesting, Andy. Thank you. And by definition, the pandemic is global in nature. But because of the individual country responses to the pandemic and the different policies which are being put in place, we're seeing obviously different levels of sort of progression of the virus. Here in Asia, as you pointed out, we started a little bit earlier and hopefully we're, we're managing to flatten that curve now. Although in Singapore, where you and I are both based, we've seen a sort of tightening of controls recently. We thought the curve was flattening, but it seems that things are getting a little bit worse and may get a little bit worse before they get a little bit better. But so part of this barometer, we also want to focus on those country level sentiment to the pandemic. And what we found is that at a country level, Spain, as probably unsurprisingly, the most pessimistic overall with a score of 45 or minus 45 out of a possible minus 50. So really low levels of confidence in the next three months moving forward. What is interesting is that Japan ties with Spain in terms of their amount of pessimism surrounding the business environment at the moment. And now that's an interesting one because it has seemed from the outset that Tokyo and Japan more generally has been doing quite well in terms of managing this. Although it is worth noting that the survey field work we did for this barometer started two days after the IOC had announced that the uh, Tokyo Olympics were being postponed. And I know they were being really positive for a long period of time that and adamant that those would not get postponed. They were going to stay where they were. But they did, of course, have to postpone them in the end. So this you know, may well have an impact on the confidence. But I know you spent a lot of time in Japan. I wonder if you can shed some light on from an S of an Asia perspective. Why, why do you think those levels of confidence are so low in Japan at the moment? It's a very good question. There's a few things to unpack there. And let me just take some of the issues around the coronavirus at the moment, because, yes, it does seem that Japan has been spared the ravages of the virus so far, and particularly if you to compare with uh, with other countries in the region and, of course, in, in Asia as well. 
However, there is a debate that's raging in Japan about the testing regime, about the reporting regime. It's certainly the case within the last couple of weeks that since the announcement that the games are going to be postponed, that the situation has deteriorated somewhat, that more stricter measures have been put in place. And there's a lot of concern over how the government and how regional government has been handling this as well. So that's there. The second part of it was, of course, that Japan's economy was looking pretty anemic anyway at the beginning of this year. Our forecast, and this is pre-coronavirus, our forecast for Japan was 0.4% growth this year. And why is that? Well, you could look back to last year. We had the increase in the sales tax, for example, which really has dampened down consumer demand. In fact, quarter four, 2019, Japan's economy contracted by 0.7%. You've got the ongoing trade war between the US and China, uh, which Japan has been caught up in as well. So there's a lot of sort of structural reasons why the outlook in Japan was was pretty poor. The latest business sentiment survey from Japan as a whole, so manufacturers, non-manufacturers in Japanese business, was very poor, You know, I think reflecting that outlook for the year ahead. So it wasn't going to take much to knock Japan into a recession and, of course, to take a big hit to business sentiment. And that's what we're seeing through COVID. I think there's some other factors in play as well. So on top of the issues that I just discussed, you've had a complete collapse of tourism and tourism in recent years, and particularly, you know, Chinese tourism has been a big driver of growth or contributor to growth within the Japanese economy. That's essentially dried up now which, of course, knocking the travel industry, the hospitality industry, spending, luxury, and so on. So, so there's a whole range of reasons why people might be reflecting that pessimism in our survey. I think the sort of final point to add would be, you know, many of the people who completed that survey might be Japan-based executives for foreign multinationals. And they are in a position where they're looking at the domestic market, but they're also sort of looking back towards their head office in Europe and North America and wanting to try to find a way to report what's going on, but at the same time, manage their businesses and prepare them or build in some of that resilience that they're going to need to get through this period. So let me take a pause there quite a bit. I think a combination of factors contribute to this pessimistic reading that we're getting from Japan. You mentioned the travel sector and being here in Singapore. I pass by Changi Airport occasionally as I go for a morning cycle. And it was quite depressing the other week to see it. It's just a massive parking lot of of plane after plane, just trying to find spots to park. I mean, Changi really for for Singapore at least is a sort of a, a bellwether of the economy here. That you know we are a sort of a global trading hub. We are a commuting hub as well from a passenger transport point of view. Um, so to see it sort of like a graveyard was really quite depressing, and uh, you know brings this current situation into stark reality when you're talking about the the travel and tourism sector. It, it's worth thinking about when we may see those planes going. I saw a plane in the sky yesterday and it was a surprise, which is unusual for Singapore. I hope things turn the corner fairly soon. But thinking about other industries, I mean, there's there's obviously a couple of industries which are, I hesitate to say, doing well, benefiting out of the current situation, collaboration tools and, and tech firms, the likes of Zoom, et cetera, who we've partly used to help record this podcast today, are doing very, very well at the moment with our security concerns aside. But from an industry perspective, and your members cut across a lot of different industries, are you seeing any other sort of rays of hope or real cases of sort of devastation across your members that you're hearing? So let's take the latter one first. You mentioned travel industry and the, and the sort of centrality of Singapore as one of those sort of key hubs and nodes within the global economy. 
you've got the travel itself, you've got the airline industry. But like you, I, I was out at Changi a couple of weeks ago and walked around the Jewel, which is virtually deserted. And this is the huge new development at Changi. It's all about shopping and enjoyment and, and food and everything. And of course, all of these stores are virtually empty. So whether it's the top level sort of luxury goods, or it's the, the fashion, or it's the restaurants and so on, all of these are suffering. Of course, that's just a microcosm of the Singaporean economy and what we're seeing in countries around the world as well. You know, a lot of sectors are being hit. On top of that, we've got the whole situation going on with oil, although we just had that deal done, of course, but this will be impacting the oil and gas sector. More positively then, I mean, you mentioned sort of uh, technology and I think in particular those platforms where people can come online, Zoom, for example, very clearly in the headlines. But beyond all of that, I think it's the interest in resilience and agility that tech companies are saying, look, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. You really need to be talking to us about how we can help you build the resilience and agility in, into your organizations. And in fact, just on that, we had a webinar a couple of weeks ago for Corporate Network where we looked at e-commerce. And we had one of the leading e-commerce players in, in the UK join the CEO from that. And he was talking about the levels of automation that they have in their operations has really helped them to deal with this pandemic. And, and in fact, their biggest challenge is capacity, you know, huge demand, of course, for e-commerce. So that's another sector that's been able to make a big contribution to economic growth at this point. You know, I guess beyond all of that, we could be thinking about how companies are looking to change themselves, how they're looking to learn from this crisis and prepare themselves for whatever's going to come after the pandemic tamps down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we covered operational agility in this barometer. And so we have, we got readings for operational agility at a, at a regional level and also at, a, at an industry level. And that was probably the only positive sort of message coming out of this research we did, where across the board and across all industries, no one had a reading of below zero. So every firm that we surveyed of the sort of some 2,600 that we surveyed, every firm said that their operational agility had got better. The average reading there was a was a plus 2.1 reading. I mean, there's a lot further to go. We can go up to 50 plus 50 in terms of uh, much better. But it was sort of a positive sign that we're, you know, businesses are reacting quickly to this, mostly out of necessity. And we've had to react out of necessity as, as well here at The Economist. I know the way that we work, and, and I have an editorial team which is based here in Singapore and Hong Kong and, and Tokyo. And so we've had to work out new ways of working and communicating and and speaking to our clients and talking about our research, whether it's through podcasts or webinars or, or these types of things. But it's had a fundamental impact on, on your business model, hasn't it, at the ECN? I mean, we don't often talk about ourselves and how things are impacting us as a business, but I think this is really relevant. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. So I mentioned at the outset that we're the briefing and, and networking service for senior business leaders from the Economist Group. So we traditionally deliver our program through face-to-face -face meetings, and that might be 20 C-suite for lunch, a closed-door session where we're looking at pertinent issues, or it could be a bigger you know, 100, 150 people in a room with a couple of panels and so on. And of course, we've had to suspend that completely right the way across all of our networks in Asia, Middle East, and Africa as well. And that's forced us to innovate. So, you know, like everybody, we rapidly came up to speed on what we could be doing 
online. And I guess just a couple of thoughts there, you know, from the, the larger scale events that we would do in a hotel, we've taken that online in terms of webinars, in terms of live casts, where we can reach out to all of our membership, wherever they are. Uh, that's at one end of the scale. The other end of the scale would be the remote briefings that we do. So our network directors dialing in and speaking directly to our members to give our, you know, our view on, on what's going on, our latest analysis and so on, and sharing that through a briefing. And in the middle, we found that bringing people together and, and small numbers, you know, somewhere between sort of 10, 15 or so people on some kind of platform where you can see everybody's face and bringing them together maybe over lunchtime for an hour to discuss pertinent issues, that's also worked very well as well. So we've had a complete pivot to virtual. And, and I think one of the learning points for us is that that will stay in our program where we get back to a situation where we can have face-to-face meetings which you know people really enjoy and it's an opportunity to network and make those connections when we get back to that we will certainly continue with an online or a virtual program as well that's one of the innovations that i think will stay with us it's beyond business as usual for us and in fact we've got a whole sort of program looking at beyond business as usual because i think one thing that we do hear from our members is that very unlikely that we go back to what we were doing you could be looking at doctor appointments in the uk for example have completely switched from 90 percent being in person and only less than 10 percent being over an iphone or a computer to the other way around and that's something that will stick that's something that will change so i think this sort of beyond business as usual is a really interesting area to be looking at yeah and i'm going to be fascinated to see what is sort of sticky as we come out of the other end of this because there is some really great examples of business ingenuity out there, whether it's sort of large traditional companies which are adapting their own sort of skills and resources to help fight the pandemic. I've seen the news, it was a while ago now that Dyson were putting all of their resources and their engineers hard at work to try and create a new type of ventilator which could be produced quickly and and cheaply. You're seeing fashion houses like Barber who are now changing their business to be making surgical gowns to try and help out our healthcare sector and workers there. And sort of closer to home here in Singapore, I was out last night at my local sports bar where I can no longer go and drink and I can no longer go and watch sport, but they've sort of reinvented themselves into a sort of a virtual farmer's market. So sort of tables out the front and they're selling produce, fresh produce, because they recognize that it's sort of much harder for people to go to the supermarket now. And, and they also obviously need to try and get some revenue coming in. Any good example? you're seeing out there of business ingenuity? I think you've listed uh, quite a lot of them and you know some important factors there I mean one there's the immediate responses of, of people like the barbers and the, and the Louis Vuittons and on providing hand sanitizer which are very welcome and will have an immediate impact but it's the lasting impact as well and particularly where you think about economies like China a lot of private businesses have responded to the call for help and they've made produce or products available for free, donated to hospitals and so on. That will go a long way. And, you know, authorities will have a long memory as well for people who've been helping out. I'm minded to recall, for example, the Asia financial crisis over 20 years ago, towards the end of the 1990s, where that shock caused manufacturing to sort of stop, essentially. Japanese companies, auto manufacturers at that time, took the decision to use the opportunity to retrain their workers, take many of them uh, you know, from Indonesia, from Thailand, back to Japan to have some intensive training. They didn't sack anybody. And those type of decisions are recognized and remembered by authorities as well. So there's a longer term sort of strategic region, not Machiavellian at all, but to use this as an opportunity to build some credit uh, with authorities. 
Yeah, it's a good point. It's certainly an opportunity for us to take the positives out of what is obviously a, a very bad period that we're going through at the moment. Finally, I'm going to ask the big question, and this is the question that we asked in our barometer as well, to find out how long this period will last. Probably the toughest question for businesses to answer these days. Across our research, we found that 40% of executives say it would take less than a year from when the outbreak started for their business to recover. So it's quite a positive view on this, I think, less than a year and quite cheering. But actually, there's a lot more sort of negative people out there when we're talking about how long this will take. Some 46% of those we surveyed believe it will take between one and two years. And a further 10% believe that it will be three to five years from when the outbreak started for us to start to recover my perspective, I think the recovery for businesses will be quite uneven and depend on quite a lot of different factors, including how strong the companies and the local economy were before the outbreak started. And then, of course, how good the policy approach to this has been from economies, whether it's sort of a, an Australia or UK or Singapore type of hibernation approach, sort of hibernating the economy during the extended lockout so that when things come back and it can come back very quickly. Large companies with better access to funding will certainly do better than SMEs. Sadly, many of those will not be able to survive this period. But for those that do, the majority should, I think, rebound in that sort of one to two year period. So I I think that's the period that we're looking forward to where we'll we'll see some market rebound and recovery in that one to two period. But Andy, what do you think? I guess I'd largely concur with you, but uh, but I'd take you back to the comments about Japan earlier on as well, where, where I was talking about that very, very poor growth outlook that we had for for Japan. And at the global level, we thought at the beginning of this year, uh, before the COVID crisis erupted, we thought that this year would be slightly less attractive in terms of growth than last year. So I think we were forecasting something like 2.2-2.3% growth for the global economy, which was slightly down from, from 2019, which would make it you know the worst year since the global financial crisis. There are a lot of issues that haven't gone away. And, and right at the heart of all of that is the relationship between the US and China. We've got this sort of phase one trade deal, but has that really solved any problems? Have we seen a sort of deterioration of relations between those two economies because of COVID as well? So protectionism is still there. And in fact, we've seen examples of protectionism from nation states sort of stopping exports of medical equipment and so on. None of these things have gone away. So yes, there'll be a rebound at some point, assuming that we see the pandemic sort of die away. But the environment wasn't very good in the first place. So I think we should be cognizant of that. I think you're also right to point out a lot of large companies are relatively cash rich. And that's certainly true with a lot of Japanese corporates as well. So they have the wherewithal to get through this crisis. But it's the SMEs, it's the entrepreneurs and so on. I think we'll see a big sort of fallout there. So the policy response, again, as you noted, is going to be very important. And that's going to be different in different countries, depending on their level of their wealth, essentially, whether they can afford these huge stimulus packages that we've seen around the world. You know, I don't want to be a complete pessimist. I think, you know, there will be upsides, you know, we'll get through this and many businesses and countries will be better for it. But there are some other concerns to keep in mind. This massive stimulus program that we're seeing around the world 
you know, what does that mean for financial stability? What does it mean for inflation? So these deeper sort of structural issues for the global economy haven't gone away. However, you know, going right back to the original sort of data that you were sharing about gloominess for the global economy, but much more positive or less gloomy at the local level, that's where we should be focused, should be focused on our businesses, on our workforce, on our clients and customers and doing the best that we can there. And that's where you're going to see the sort of bottom up grassroots growth story emerging. Well, that's a positive note to leave it on. Thank you, Andy. So that's it for our first episode of Perspectives. Thank you, Andy, for coming on board. And thank you for the support of SaaS, a global provider of data and analytics software and services that help turn data into intelligence. The next few months and years will be a bumpy ride for all of us, but I hope you can join us again soon. We'll be back with regular updates on the Global Business Barometer as we refresh the data. And I, for one, will be eager to see the readings move back into positive sentiment territory. The full barometer results can be found at globalbusinessbarometer.economist.com. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening to Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit.